This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining us today is the Reverend Dr. Howell Jones, Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He is author of the Evangelical Press Commentary on Job. He's also author of Let's Study Hebrews, and he's written For the Sake of the Gospel, a commentary on Philippians, among other things. And he's contributed an essay to Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey on preaching the doctrine of regeneration to a Christian congregation. And that's what we're discussing today on Office Hours. All these titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Howell, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. We're talking about the question of regeneration. That's a large word with which some people might be familiar and other people might not be. So, for the sake of the listener, when you say regeneration, or when we say regeneration, what are we talking about? Well, regeneration could be paraphrased by the word rebirth, but that raises a host of questions that we might get into a little later. But it does refer to another birth. And only twice in the New Testament is the noun regeneration used. Uh, One of the uses uh, doesn't relate to the kind of regeneration that we are going to be talking about and which was treated to some degree in the essay that you referred to. Jesus was asked by his disciples who had seen the rich young ruler being disappointed that Jesus reminded him of the need for thorough change in his life, and he went away. The disciples then asked him, who then can be saved? And in replying, Jesus assured them that there would be those who were saved and that In the new world, which is how the ESV translates the Greek word regeneration, uh, there would be immense gracious rewards for those who trusted and followed him. Now, the fact that he uses the word regeneration there of the new world gives us a kind of lead-in to what this new birth is inseparably associated with. It's the life of the age to come. It's a life that is eternal. It's a life that is heavenly and everlasting. And it's the beginning, the essential beginning of salvation that God provides, Jesus procured, being applied to the sinner. Is regeneration important? And have people always agreed on what regeneration is? I suppose the short answer, and I hope not a slick one, to the question, why is regeneration important, is that Jesus thought it was. And he was quite specific on this to someone who, from human standpoint, might be considered to have no need of being reborn. 
namely Nicodemus, who was a Jew, who was a teacher of Israel, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who showed some respect to Jesus, showed some uh, interest in him, uh, and yet, abruptly, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. So here is something absolutely essential. Uh, have people always agreed on it? No, uh, they, they haven't, and they don't. We would, we would have to, I think, draw a distinction between views of regeneration or rebirth or reformation, even self-reformation, uh, that are current in the non-Christian world. And there are so many of those stretching right back to the first century. But nowadays, with a concern for a new environment and a new self, the kinds of moral self-improvement, improvement in one's physical appearance, makeovers of rooms and homes and gardens and all the rest of it, all that somehow is a reflection of an unconscious reflection, unwitting reflection of paradise lost and is an attempt to paradise regained, but with a difference. It's man at the center, not God. And regeneration, rebirth, the kind of uh, new life that Jesus referred to was the new life that enables one to see the kingdom of God and to enter into the kingdom of God. So this is something very specific, quite different from you know, reincarnation, transmigration of souls and so on, and a concern about a better life here and now. There is a best life here and now, and that's bound up with what we're talking about, regeneration. Can we will ourselves to be regenerated, or is it something that has to happen to us? It has to happen to us, and it happens mysteriously. And it isn't possible to detect its occurrence, whether by an onlooker or even by the recipient of it. It's a divine monogistic work. There is no cooperation, contribution to it. The sinner cannot prepare himself for it nor can the sinner add to it. It is a work done by God the Holy Spirit. And that is indicated by the way in which, or the ways in which in the New Testament, when there is no specified subject of a verb that refers to regeneration, but recipients are being described, it, that verb is always in the passive voice. It is something done to us. So if you were to ask me how to be born again, then that would be a question I couldn't answer. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When Jesus confronted Nicodemus, how did Nicodemus understand what Jesus said? He didn't. He, uh, he thought of it in terms of another physical human birth. And of course, that was something which surprised and shocked on a human level, shocked Jesus because Nicodemus should have known the Old Testament to which Jesus went on to refer by way of explanation uh, should have given him the information that he needed not to make such a terrible howler as to think that he had to be born, enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born. On what kinds of Old Testament background did Jesus rely or to which Old Testament background did he appeal and what other 
places in the Hebrew Scriptures might one go to get an idea that this is something that God does and not something that we do? Well, Jesus himself, after twice asserting to Nicodemus that he had to be born again, made a comment which should have given him a hint as to how he ought to have been thinking. Jesus referred to water and spirit. And um, water in the Old Testament pervasively refers to cleansing. And spirit refers to breath or life or something new. So by referring to water and spirit, I believe that Jesus was referring to the two constituent elements of regeneration, namely dealing with the past and creating the future. And the um, it's a hendiadis then. We oughtn't to think of these two as separate items, but they're two sides, as it were, of the same coin. And the, the passage in particular, I think, that was in view was the the promise that Ezekiel was given to announce to the to the Jews in Babylon, there on account of their long-continued idolatry, there in terms of contradiction of the divine nature and promise in infringement of God's law, subject to God's displeasure. Ezekiel 36 says that he would sprinkle clean water upon them from all their idols, he would cleanse them, and a new heart he would give them, and a new spirit put within them. So that was, that I, I believe is the, is the, particular portion of the Old Testament to which Jesus was making reference. Is it the case that the contemporary evangelical church, both in the UK and in North America, is closer in its view of regeneration to Jesus' view or to Nicodemus' view today? Well, I think it's closer to Jesus' view. But then evangelical is such a a spectrum term. But at least well, the kind of evangelicalism that I was familiar with when I was growing up was in no doubt at all that everyone had to be born again. But sadly, they didn't think of rebirth, regeneration, as a divine act. It was associated inseparably with conversion, which is, of course, a human act. Turning in repentance and faith is something that we do, though, as a result of God's grace alone. But regeneration is not to be associated with conversion, much less should we think, as I remember being taught, that we convert and then God regenerates us. Yeah, that's what I was getting. As a young evangelical in the mid-70s, that's what I was taught, that we choose, we move, we take a step, we do our part, and then God meets us by his Spirit and then grants us new life. And then that, of course, is all commemorated in, in baptism and so forth. Yeah, well, to, to understand regeneration like that is not only in, in total contradiction of the New Testament's teaching on the nature of man in sin, but it raises the huge question is, how can anyone take that initial step truly with reference to God? In the, because we're all spiritually dead. And this is the basic reason why... Regeneration is absolutely necessary. Unless God does something to us, we're finished. What is the biblical picture of us before we are regenerate? Well, dead, without that life that regeneration 
conveys. Why do you say that? From from where? What biblical passages make you say that? Because I can imagine a listener for whom this might be a new idea saying, well, that seems awfully radical. I know people who aren't Christian, who have an interest in God and, and an interest in spiritual things. Are they really dead? Aren't you just a, a negative Calvinist reading your doctrinal convictions back into the Bible? Okay, well, Jesus said, whoever commits sin referring to a present, ongoing course of life. Whoever commits sin, the same is the bond slave of sin. Sin is not just to be thought of in terms of sins. Sin is something that dominates and enslaves, and it not only dominates and enslaves, so that we are no longer free and no longer have a free will in the sense in which it is commonly thought of being able to do this or that, not turn to God or turn to God. No, our wills are the executors of our characters. And our, our character, our heart, if you like, is in bondage to sin. But not only in bondage to sin. Ephesians 2 says, dead in trespasses and sins, which means that every part of us is so affected by sin that it is not possible for us by any means at all to eradicate it or even to abate it so that we are truly obeying God. Sin is our master. Sin has cut us off from God. Sin is corrupting and sin is condemning. So we need to be delivered from it and we can't deliver ourselves. The bones in Ezekiel, Mm -hmm. were dead. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't knit themselves back together, could they? No. Who knit them? Yeah, well, it was was God's Spirit, wasn't it? In association with the prophet's word, which raises another matter, it was God's Spirit uh, that did that, brought them together, joined them together. But that wasn't sufficient. Breath had to come. And that's where new life is mysteriously, like the wind in John 3, the wind blows where it wills. That's what generally quickens, makes alive together with Christ. You raised an important question about the relationship between the Word and the work of the Spirit in regeneration. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark. We're talking to Howell Jones about the question of what is regeneration and how should it be preached to the Christian congregation. And when we come back after this break, we're going to explore the connection briefly between the Word and the sacraments and regeneration. And we'll do that right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Howell, earlier you used the word monergistic. What does that mean? It's the opposite of synergistic. One, <laughs> mono, monogistic is one acting, synergistic, cooperating, let's say. 
and regeneration is not cooperative. The dead can't do anything, anything to make themselves alive. So dead men don't wear plaid and dead men don't cooperate in, in their own spiritual resurrection. It's something that is done to them by God. But that doesn't answer the question of the instrument through which God operates to bring dead sinners to life. And you mentioned the word regeneration, the usage, the number of times the noun regeneration is used in the New Testament. And so I grabbed my phone and I did a quick search in the New Testament, and I found it in, uh, in Titus 3.5. So I, I know you're familiar with that usage. I can imagine a listener hearing the first part of our discussion and perhaps thinking of Titus 3.5, which says he saved us not because of works done by us, which would seem to agree exactly with what you've been saying so far, not by work, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And again, that goes back to the theme of monergism. But then there's this language, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Some have read that language to say, well, it says washing. That's clearly a reference to baptism, and and therefore it must be in baptism that God regenerates monergistically. How do you respond to that? What do you think? Well, if if Paul was were wanting his words to be clearly understood as baptism, he could have used the word baptisma, which he does in Ephesians and Colossians, but he didn't. He used another word. Similarly, the word renewing. Uh, He could have used the word for sanctification, but he didn't. He used the word for making new again. So at least the terminology of Titus 3.5 leaves room for someone to think that the reference is not as tightly connected to baptism as some have argued. Washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit are an echo of water and spirit in John 3. And on the basis that Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus understand, for him to have been referring to Christian baptism is a little anachronistic, to say the least. So connecting those two passages, how we understand water and spirit in John 3 and washing and renewing in Titus 3, is, is all of a piece. That, however, doesn't mean that there is no kind of connection at all between regeneration and baptism, or regeneration and sanctification. The all-important question is, what kind of a connection? Is it a one-to-one? Is it an equivalent to an ex opere operato? Uh, By the doing of the deed, the administration of baptism inevitably conveys the grace of regeneration, which it doesn't. It is through the virtue or the merit of the um, of the sacrament is not tied to the moment of its administration. So it's a, it's a sign and it's a seal to faith. There's that kind of sacramental connection, but it isn't a material, physical, inevitable, one-to-one. It's not magic. No. We know that not just because we're good Orthodox Calvinists, but we know that because Scripture shows again and again instances where the sacrament of initiation into the covenant community is administered, and clearly people were not brought to faith. Esau 
was initiated into the covenant community with a typological, that is a a shadowy, uh, looking forward sign and seal. And clearly, if Romans 9 is to be believed, and here we believe Romans 9, he never came to faith. God never loved Esau in that in the same sense in which he loved Jacob, and he never knew Esau, and Esau was was never elect, and therefore we say he was never, in the sense in which we've been using this word, never regenerate, never given that principle of new life. And of course, we could think of a lot of other instances where the sign was administered, but it wasn't necessarily efficacious. So, if it's the case that baptism doesn't necessarily work new life, or that God doesn't necessarily work new life through baptism. Is there an instrument, is there a medium through which God has promised to operate, or through which he ordinarily operates to create new life? Yes, there is. And it's vital that this inward, mysterious, and irrevocable act on his part be closely associated with his word, both in terms of law and promise. And then the Spirit uses that word because regeneration in Titus 3 is not the only item in the application of redemption that's specified. It's also justification there and even in inheritance and, and assurance. Uh, so the word the Spirit uses in association with implanting of the principle of new life is a word that brings faith, brings repentance, creates the response. John 3 makes that clear. And there's nothing more dangerous than to separate regeneration, let's say by way of shorthand, from John 3.16, so that people are left wondering, have I been born again? Instead of asking themselves the question, Why haven't I believed? Or put more positively, I've believed, so therefore I have been born again. Because very often in the New Testament, not only uh, do we find verbs in the passive voice to stress this is God's act, but they're also in the perfect tense to indicate that while this is an act in the past, not a process, an act, it has ongoing consequences in the present and the future. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You raise the question of assurance. In the history of the Christian church, people have sometimes asked the question, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not certain that I am born again, that I have been given new life by God. I'm sure as a pastor, you've dealt with that, that someone has come to you and said, Pastor, I just don't know if it's true of me. How do you answer that question? Elderly people have come. People in their 60s and 70s have come who haven't been baptized because the teaching that they were hearing shifted the focus of attention from Christ to themselves and from the Word to this inward work of the Spirit. And so they were waiting for something in addition to the Word of God by way of promise as a warrant to believe. A second blessing. Well, whatever, you know, line of a hymn, line of a scripture lit up, made personal. And that is an indication to them, yes, they're elect. So knowing that they're elect, they now can believe, which is putting cart before horse and creating a terrible bondage. So in answer to your question, yes, I've met them and I've had to deal with them. And the way in which I try to deal with them is this, uh, to show to them uh, that what God says to dead sinners 
is not be born again. It's not discover your election. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those shall be saved. Which is just terribly important, isn't it? Because if you set about trying to determine, first of all, am I elect? You're asking to know something that, at least in the way that question is being put, in that way, can't really be known. You're, you're asking to know something that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says belongs to God. The hidden things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. And the same thing would be true in a sense of asking, am I regenerate? The question is, isn't it, do I believe? And have I trusted in Christ? It's, that's the focus. And so that gets us back to the question of preaching. How do preaching and the sovereign, monergistic work of God in regeneration, how do those two things work together? Mysteriously. But they do work together. And they work together in in ways that astound the preacher. And um, there's nothing more encouraging than to find that when one hasn't strictly been preaching the gospel message, calling on sinners to repent and believe and assuring them that they will be received if they do so, but expounding the Scripture, people come alive, and they show that they're alive by what they now believe, by what they now love, by how they now live. That is the evidence not merely of genuine faith. It's the evidence of that prior work, which is encouraging. It wasn't that I chose him, but he chose me first. And it wasn't that I trusted Christ. It was that he gave me faith to trust him. And so in tough times, when our faith and hope and love waver and decline, we can say to ourselves, we are no longer what we were. God did something to us. We are not what we will be, but we'll never be what we were ever again. And it's true, isn't it, that when we think of the relationship between the work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign, gracious work of the Spirit, through the foolishness of preaching, that it gives lie to the caricature that Calvinists are not warm and that Calvinists don't believe in the ongoing work of the Spirit, we might not agree with the way some people characterize the ongoing work of the Spirit. But on our own terms, as we understand Scripture, we certainly believe in the present, vital, sovereign, active work of the Spirit. Do we not? If it were not, well, I don't know that I'd ever preach a sermon again. I've been preaching for a little while. <laughs> I think that's a great place to begin to bring this discussion to a close. As a preacher, which is what you and I are at core, that's our vocation, when you step into a pulpit, what does it mean to you to know from the very core of your being that God is sovereign and that the Spirit acts through the announcement of the of the Word of God? Well, two things. One, of course, it's it's an immense encouragement. Spurgeon said to, would say to himself, every step into the pulpit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous encouragement. It's also, of course, a, you know, a solemnizing moment because um, it is going to be through what I say, as well, of course, 
in addition to what I say, but what I say is not unconnected with the work of the Holy Spirit. So appeals and warnings and pleadings, as well as correct exegesis and sound theology, are all usable by the Spirit so that the resultant effect is what the best kind of vocabulary, expressions, imagery, everything, they by themselves cannot even stir the dead. But when the Spirit takes them and uses them, He gives the increase. That increase that results in life being given, not just a stirring They become alive and they live forever. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.